This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories, and tough stories, too. And today, we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter. Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as Mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was but you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them, yell at them. 
Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, kisses and cookies, Jules Bagools. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know. And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or... I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. End quote. Last but not least, he said these words, quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories that touch on every part of American life. And one theme that cuts across many of our stories is the theme of innovation. And today we're joined by Tim Harford, author of a great book titled 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And we're going to dig into just a few more of those inventions. And by the way, we've done a bunch of segments with Tim. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and catch them all. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And Tim, today, let's start with something near and dear to us here in Mississippi, and that's air conditioning. My dad used to tell me that everyone he knew went to the movie theaters for one reason only. It wasn't whether the movie was any good or the cartoons. There was air conditioning. Talk about yeah, it. this is why we have summer blockbusters. Uh, absolutely, it's just a place to go where it's cool and the, in the heat of the sun. So, air conditioning is is a fascinating invention. There's um, a wonderful writer Stephen Johnson who argued that air conditioning elected Ronald Reagan. And you think, well, how does how does that work? <laughs> well, air conditioning changed the demographics of the United States. It enabled many more people to live comfortably in Texas, in Florida, all those people retiring to Florida and then starting to vote Republican. So it's changing the political landscape of the United States. And in fact, it's, it's changing the, um, the shape of the world, really, for, for similar reasons. So you, you think about these uh, amazing new cities that are, have in the last few decades been growing uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, it, it, Dubai. Uh, you go to these places, there is no way you can build a glass walled skyscraper in Singapore or Dubai without air conditioning. It's completely impossible. There's no way that technology uh, will work without air conditioning. So it makes possible skyscrapers in warm climates. It make, makes a lot of things possible that, that we take for granted. Indeed. The other thing, it's a companion almost to air conditioning, not the same, but I'm skipping ahead to chapter 22, and it's the elevator. I want to read something quickly. We don't tend to think of elevators as mass transportation systems, but they are. They move hundreds of millions of people every day, and China alone is installing 700,000 elevators a year. How did elevators change the world? Well, let me just justify that statement about mass transit. Just imagine a, a building such as the, the Sears Tower in Chicago. <clears throat> I guess we call it the Willis Tower now, don't we? Or the Empire State Building in New York. Um, think about all those floors. These are roughly 80, 100 stories. Think of all those stories, and now let's just chop them into single-story or two-story buildings, and we and distribute those buildings all over a big office park, and sort of out-of-town office park, and think of all the um, all the car parks you need to have around them, and think of the enormous amount of space that that office park would take up. Now, because they're all stacked on top of each other. Um, you don't need the car parking. You don't need people driving their automobiles uh, to get to this space. You just go in on the ground floor, get in the elevator, and you can be taken to any floor in the building. So that, that's why I say it's a mass transit system. I think it, that, that's absolutely an accurate um, description. Uh, how did it shape the world? Well, it made the skyscraper possible. There is really no way you could realistically have a building more than... And that 10 stories, unless you have a functioning elevator, or actually more to the point, 
the real innovation is is the elevator brake because we've had elevators for hundreds and hundreds of years but nobody is going to get in an elevator uh, that's going to go any serious height unless it's safe and otis yeah that guy uh, elijah otis invented the elevator brake and he demonstrated it at one of these world's fairs and uh, it was a hugely theor- theatrical demonstration he was lifted up 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 above the crowd and standing behind him on this scaffolding you imagine the 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 drama of it there's a guy with an executioner's axe and he raises the axe as though he's about to strike off otis's head and he swings the axe down and he chops the elevator rope and everyone in the crowd screams and the elevator falls about a quarter of an inch and then Otis yells out to everybody, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. He's demonstrated that he has developed a safe way to make uh, the elevator work. And they are, in fact, incredibly safe. They make skyscrapers possible. And they're really in- enormously efficient. So the, the people who are, who are concerned about energy efficiency and they talk about double glazing, they talk about insulation, they talk about all the ways that you can uh, reduce the fuel consumption of a building. One of the the best ways of all is an elevator because you shift a lot of people using a counterweight, pack them all into a very dense area, and you can have a a very low environmental impact city like Manhattan, very low environmental impact, and yet still generate a tremendous amount of of, uh, economic output, of, of income. And it's all possible because of the elevator. Indeed. Let's talk about the barcode. Now, that doesn't seem too glamorous, but without the barcode, my goodness, Walmart, Home Depot, none of this stuff is possible, is it? Uh, no, it, it isn't. And I, I should say on the subjects of glamour, the idea of, of this book, the, the 50 inventions that, that shape the modern economy, it's not to pick the 50 most important inventions. It, it's to try to surprise people a little bit and to get them to look at everyday objects in a, in a different way. And the barcode's one of the, one of the great examples of that. So, um, so the barcode was, um, was invented several times, really. But, but the, the real inventive moment, and I'm drawing a blank on the, the um, inventor's name for a second. It may come to me. But he, was, um, he was sitting at the beach. He was visiting his uh, grandparents. And he was thinking of the time he'd spent as a Boy Scout communicating in Morse code. And he'd been trying to figure out this problem. How do I create an automated till? And um, he dragged his fingers in a lazy circle through the sand. And then he looked down and he, he saw he'd created a kind of um, bullseye with his fingers, the ridges and the troughs. And he realized he could use those ridges and troughs to uh, convey a code, Morse code. And so the original barcodes were in fact bullseyes. The idea of the bullseye is, well, you can scan it in, in any direction. It doesn't make any, uh, any difference. It's always the same. Um, in the end, of course, the modern barcode is linear. Uh, and it took several decades to get the computers cheap enough and the lasers cheap enough to make it uh, a practical technology. But once it was there, well, actually, I should say before it was there, there was a huge debate in the retail industry. You had the big retailers, you had the food manufacturers, and everybody was arguing rooms full of lawyers over the barcode. And they were arguing for a good reason, because they knew that 
the exact design of the barcode, how it was put together, who had to pay for the infrastructure. These things were going to make a big difference. They were going to advantage some retailers. They were going to disadvantage others. So there were these huge fights. Uh, and of course, the the retailers didn't want to put the, the barcode scanners in until the food manufacturers had barcodes on their products. And the food manufacturers didn't want to bother putting barcodes on their products until the scanners existed to read them. So there was this all this kind of you go first thing. I mean, um, Miller, I think, had been printing their labels on their beer bottles using the same technology for about six, 60 or 70 years. So the idea that you're going to retool in order to print these crazy barcodes, not very attractive. But in the end, it was it was done. And as you say, it empowered Walmart and the, the real big box retailers because it solved a problem that they had about keeping track of stock, about keeping the staff on the, the checkout, keeping them honest. So they didn't put money in their own pocket. Everything was scanned through. It solved a problem they had and that the, the mom and pop shops didn't have because they, they knew what was on the shelves and what was running low. They weren't going to steal from themselves. So it really tilted the playing field in favor of, of, the, of the big players. And Walmart in particular, I think people underestimate how important Walmart was in integrating the American economy with the Chinese economy. They made a huge contribution there, whether you like it or not, um, to introducing these very, very cheap goods. And they couldn't have done it without the barcode. And by the way, that young man was Joseph Woodland, and he was a graduate student at the Drexel Institute in Philadelphia. He was the one pondering that, that problem on a beach. He was indeed. And the other story about Woodland is he, he also designed a, a device to play Muzak in elevators. And his father advised him not to go down that path because he said, oh, the elevator business is dominated by the mafia. I've got no idea if this is true, but that's what he was told. The elevator business is dominated by the ma mafia. You don't want to go in there with your Muzak machine. Invent something else. And he invented the barcode. And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear more of this remarkable book. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. It's written and hosted by Ted Bollocker. Sacre Bleu! The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. <laughs> America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up to the amazement of the world, and especially the French, surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world of wine. Sure, since at least the mid-20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines. 
But it's been a tough sell. Say hello to Gallo. Hello to Gallo Wine. When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag. This champagne doesn't come from France. Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French. Take two. Ah, the French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed. Get rippled. American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noël Formeau. Something like the hamburger. Because the hamburger... It's not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged. There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines. Mighty France versus lowly California. In a blind taste test, judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs, they would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. <laughs> it's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a, a slap in the face. I was uh, feeling like I was born again. Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? <laughs> How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way. Different when I came from communism, where it was not freedom. <laughs> I have used American opportunity. Gergic was raised in a small village in Croatia. He developed a taste for wine at a very young age. To be honest, my mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine. And I liked when Gergich arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place. I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that people are trying to compete. One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig. I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything. I suggest that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gurgic's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly. The French were interested to understand what was going on in California. Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder, 
given what he used to do for a living. I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery. And he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. And that, of course, put us on the map. Uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up to 1980, America has never been the land of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formo headed west. My job was to uh, come to California for six months. And it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? an atmosphere of innovation. And because of that, America has been able to create many things that have changed, really, the way wine is made today. Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation, a process Gergich helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine. It's extremely difficult in France, compared to here, that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules. Not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, we're able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all, but you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance. I think France has been lost a little bit for a while. Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions. I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment. What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California. Here I felt free and I could be successful, and that's why I've been doing here what I couldn't have done in France. But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game, and that means better wine for all of us. This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com, and the piece was called Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Sacre Bleu! Sacre Bleu! And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise. And just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do 
by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding and credentialing, where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines, not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Story. American stories. And now it's time for another rule of law story as a part of our rule of law series, where we show you the presence or absence of the rule of law and how it affects all of our lives. Here's Robbie with the next installment. We have the freedom to call ourselves what we are. We have the freedom to, well, speak. And we expect that this is protected by the Constitution, unlike, say, running a red light. Now, that you should be punished for. But what if you got a ticket for speaking about red lights? Well, that happened in Beaverton, Oregon to Matt Jarlstrom. He was also told that he wasn't an engineer, which he was. So I grew up in Sweden. I listened actually to R&B music a lot when I was growing up. It was kind of the disco age, lots of bass, uh, drums, and uh, so I was interested in reproducing that with uh, loudspeakers. And uh, that's actually the reason why I started to become a, uh, an electronics engineer. So I had the four-year electronics courses in becoming an engineer in that field. After that, I went into Linköping's Technical College to continue. Uh, there I actually met uh, an American exchange student, uh, a cute girl. That's actually the reason why I finally ended up in the United States. A few decades later in Beaverton, Oregon, this whole red light business started. Well, for, for me personally, it started out when uh, my wife uh, received a red light camera citation in the mail. Didn't really pay attention to traffic signals. And I think most people don't really pay attention to them more than, hey, they need to stop or go. But this time, Matt's gave it a little more interest than usual. Well, a lot more. Matt's in his own free time took an approach that most of us would never even think to, due to his rather inquisitive nature and the fact that his wife had only run the light by 12 one hundredths of a second. So it was a really small margin that uh, she had triggered the system with. And uh, so I was curious to see or find out more about it. And my wife and I went to the intersection and actually 
used a video camera to, to study the, the timing of this device. And when they compared their findings to the times that the city of Beaverton had listed on their website, turns out the red light was changing faster than the website said it should. So uh, we thought that, uh, hey, my wife could bring this information into the courtroom, the municipal court, and present that to the judge and see if she can get the ticket dismissed. And uh, the judge literally just said, hey, look at the video here. It looks like you ran a red light. So it proves that you did something wrong and uh, you have to pay. That didn't really sit so well with me. So I took it in actually to the city hall and uh, brought this information to them. And uh, there I was equally dismissed. While investigating traffic lights, he came across an equation that's meant to calculate how long a yellow light needs to be for cars to stop. But he noticed something was wrong. This equation that's used mainly in the United States of America um, was developed back in 1959. However, it's only applicable for straight-through lanes uh, because uh, it's designed to be a minimum stopping distance uh, that you traverse uh, at constant speed. And uh, you can only traverse that uh, distance uh, at constant speed if you go straight through an intersection. And uh, it doesn't then apply to when you make a turn. I thought uh, initially that by taking this information that I had learned to uh, the Board of Engineers here in the state of Oregon, they can bring that information out to our practicing engineers uh, around the state. But instead of Looking into the subject matter that I brought to their attention, they were more interested in that I had said that I was a Swedish electronics engineer. So there were two things that they were complaining um, that I did wrong or illegally, and that was that I called myself an engineer without being licensed in the state of Oregon. And the second one was that I actually talked about traffic signals without being licensed to do so. I actually talked to the Board of Engineers of uh, well, the, the First Amendment rights that we have not only in the US Constitution and then also in uh, the, the Oregon's Constitution itself. Uh, but they ignored all those uh, things uh, that I brought up to their attention. Um, so I thought that was clear that I could move on and, and uh, continue with my quest. And in his research, Matt's figured out a way to solve the problem of traffic lights not taking account for people making turns. You know, as one does in their free time. And I presented that one in in an email that I sent out actually to 60 Minutes and to the National Board of Engineers. I also forwarded that email to the Board of Engineers, which they then later deemed to be illegal. And that's how it actually started uh, with an investigation by the board that lasted uh, literally two years, or almost two years, and and a fine of uh, $500. Um, It was uh, actually very uh, stressful to be under investigation, and especially if you're being told that you're illegal for saying who you are. I am a a Swedish engineer, and uh, it it hurt me uh, to the core. To be honest with you, I just wanted to bring information out so we can talk about it. I'm just sharing some ideas. And uh, I think that's a fundamental thing for all of us, that we should be able to be free to share ideas. If we don't have any ideas uh, or people don't dare to share ideas, that means we don't have any ideas to to, to pick from. And obviously, that's not good for, for the whole.
There's this thing in America called the rule of law. It's the idea that there are publicly known, stable laws that are applied to everyone. So in Matz's case, the rule of law is that the First Amendment covers his right to speak truthfully and openly. Truthfully about who he is and openly about any ideas. The government can't just violate rights because they want to. If they do, because of the rule of law, Matt can do something about it. He can go to court, point to the law, in this case the Constitution, and say this can't be done. And a court of law rules on it. And he did. With the help of the Institute for Justice, Matz took the engineering board to court and sued them to secure his rights. Here's Matz's lawyer from the Institute for Justice, Sam Gedge. The board has had a really remarkable history of enforcing these laws against all kinds of different people. And the board's enforcement practices really fell into two camps. One, they went after people who simply talked about technical topics, like Matt's talking about yellow traffic lights, or like people talking about power plants, or, or landfills, or really any kind of engineering topic you can think of. At the same time, though, the board was equally aggressive in policing the word engineer. So all of the software engineers working at Intel in Oregon, uh, couldn't call themselves engineers, um, you know, a sanitation engineer couldn't call themselves an engineer, a domestic engineer couldn't call themselves an engineer. And for most people who were caught up in these really onerous enforcement proceedings, it simply wasn't worth it to hire a lawyer and to, to try to vindicate their First Amendment rights. So the board just kept getting away with it. There is no engineering exception to the First Amendment. Our claims really fell into two buckets. One, Matz had a First Amendment right to talk about the math behind traffic lights, and he wanted to continue talking about traffic lights. And we needed a federal court order securing his right to do that. And likewise, uh, we sought similar relief um, from the federal courts uh, protecting his right to describe himself truthfully using the word engineer. And thankfully, the courts ended up siding in Matz's favor. So we, um, well, could uh, even... Uh, help all engineers here in Oregon, and uh, they will probably help across the country as well to be able to say who we are without being deemed illegal. So how has he been using his, not necessarily newfound, but newly affirmed freedom? I have um, uh, presented actually um, my ideas to the Institute of Transportation Engineers uh, it's an international organization uh, based in uh, Washington, D.C. They have about 15,000 members uh, in 90 countries. And um, right now, they're going to have a, an appeals board set up where I can do or go and present my, uh, my ideas and my uh, solutions uh, because I feel it, it's, it's important. I don't feel like people should get a uh, citation for just, uh, well doing a safe and comfortable uh, turn. And um, here in Oregon, the citation is uh, $260. And uh, for a low-income person or family, that is a big uh, expense for not necessarily doing anything wrong. The, the second one is also, I feel like um, we need to be prepared for autonomous vehicles. Uh, because they are going to be programmed to drive through intersections safely and comfortably. Uh, and that's actually what we should also be uh, doing today as humans. We need to be able to drive through an intersection safely and comfortably without having to slam on the brakes or accelerate into the intersection to kind of fix the, the underlying problems that we have today. And uh, I think uh, I have the voice right now to do so. And the solution he presented to the board of 15,000 individuals in 90 countries? 
It was accepted and is being pushed out internationally, and all without a government-issued engineering license. And great job, as always, to Robbie Davis, and a special thanks to the Institute for Justice for taking on cases like this pro bono, and they do this all across the country, and Matt Jarlstrom for doing what he did and challenging the authorities and the experts in his home state. And my goodness, there is no engineering exception to the First Amendment, especially if you're an engineer, you should be able to comment on things that relate to engineering. And if you want to learn more about the Institute for Justice, go to ij.org. They do terrific work. And my goodness, what a job they did here helping Matt Yallstrom. And he's right, 260 bucks is real money to a lot of Americans. Matt Yallstrom's story, another part of our Rule of Law series here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And today, we have the story of Medal of Honor recipient Gary Bykirk. Gary didn't have the most stable upbringing. He moved 11 times before he was in the ninth grade. He finally settled down in high school, fell in love with a girl, and followed her to SUNY Brockport College, where they were both studying to become phys ed teachers. Here's Gary. Uh, We had gotten there and started college. After about three or four weeks, she broke up with me. Uh, So there I was in college in 1965, with not any real good reason for being there, anymore. Uh, and, and in the meantime, a very good friend of mine, he had suffered the same kind of experience. And so one day we were sitting together and we got talking and uh, his name was Don, Don Jocks. And he said, so Gary, what are we going to do? And I said, I don't know, Don, you know, we were both two young guys, 20 years old with our hearts broken. And he, he said, well, I'm, I come from a Marine family. All my family were Marines. He said, let's go in the Marine Corps together. Buddy system, Gary. And I said, Don, I'm not going to go in the Marine Corps. Those guys are crazy. I had recently read a book called The Green Berets by Robin Moore. And, uh, and to me, uh, that was exciting. That was challenging. And besides that, uh, from what I knew about the war, that just seemed a really good way to fight the war, to become assimilated into the, into the culture, uh, become one of the people. And uh, that sounded very, very challenging. And not only that, but it felt like the uh, the way that the war should be fought. And I said to Don, I'm going to go into Green Berets, Don. And we shook hands, said goodbye. He went on into the Marine Corps. A couple of years later, I received word that he was killed at Quezon. Well, I had gone down in, to the uh, recruiting station in Rochester here. And I told the guy, I said, look, I'm going to be a Green Beret. And he kind of laughed and he said, well, you just can't enlist in the Green Berets. And he was saying, you know, you don't really know what you're getting yourself into. I can't sign you up to be a Green Beret. 
Plus, he looked at me. Maybe I didn't look like the type that could, could do that way, but he threw down a challenge to me. He said, but if you're really interested, I think I can get you in to uh, the Airborne Infantry, and then it's up to you whether or not you're going to get to be a Green Beret. So he threw down this challenge to me, and uh, I was always ready for a challenge. Uh, that was just part of my nature. So in August of 67, I, I raised my hand and uh, took the oath, and I was on my way to Fort Dix for basic training. Stayed at Fort Dix for infantry training after another after eight weeks of basic, did eight weeks of infantry. And then I received orders to go to airborne school down to Fort Benning. Took off down to Fort Benning, uh, had three weeks of, of uh, airborne training. The challenges that I encountered in basic and, and in AIT, advanced infantry training, were challenging, but it was I never really felt like I wanted to quit or do anything, even though they tried a, a lot of mental and emotional things that nowadays are, are illegal, but back then they weren't. But each one of those things just kind of made me more committed to uh, achieving my goal of becoming a Green Beret. And then air, airborne school was another physical challenge where I, I say that I, I had the first experience of hitting the wall, you know, the, the mile, the five-mile run and everything in combat boots and stuff. Those, I really hit the wall. It's like where you feel like, well, if, I think I might quit. But if I just, I just told myself, I can, I can do one more step, and I just did that. And that's what got me through the wall. And that was an important lesson, is that I realized that I was capable of doing much more than I thought I could if I could just do one more, one more push-up, one more step, take one more breath. I could break through that wall. And I, I finished airborne school, graduated, uh, had the silver wings put on my chest. The last week, we had a group of uh, about four or five of these poster men from the, for the Green Berets. They looked like they could have been poster guys advertising Green Berets. They came down and they, they interviewed, I think there's probably about 15 of us or so that were trying out for special forces. And we had a, a couple days of physical tests, some, some written exams, some interviews. And after that, I think there's probably about five of us that were told that we were accepted and we were on our way to, uh, on our way to, to Fort Bragg to begin special forces training. Uh, it was during Special Forces training that I probably received most of the things in my life that impacted me and changed me and helped to make me the person that I am today. It was just a tremendous, tremendous challenge, both physically, emotionally, mentally. Briefly, we had the f first phase that was um, eight weeks of just intense military training, tactics, operations, physical, a little bit more of guerrilla warfare, weapons training. And that was called phase one back then. Back now, I think it's called selection. After that, we were allowed to wear a beret, but we didn't have a our group flashlight yet, which signified which group you're going to go to. But being able to wear that beret the first time was a real sense of uh, achievement. It was a, a goal that uh, I had had. I was partway there. I had a, a green beret. I, I wasn't a green beret yet, but I could wear the green beret. At that time, then they, they interviewed us and they said, okay, Special Forces has a specialty of medical, weapons, communications, engineering, demolitions, or operations and intelligence. Which one do you want to go to? I chose medic uh, because at the time, and it still is one of the most challenging programs that the military has, a Special Forces medic is, a, is just a tremendous accomplishment to be able to achieve that. Uh, at the time, this would have been in 67, 68, most guys after our training uh, we, ex we expected and wanted to go to Vietnam. I was assigned to the 3rd Special Forces Group, which our area of operation was Africa, but we were based at Fort Bragg. 
our time there, we were welcomed by our sergeant major, company sergeant major. There was about four or five of us that went to the third group. He welcomed us in a morning formation. There was the five of us standing up in front of the headquarters building. And for about two minutes, he just walked up and down in front of us, stared us in the eye, walked behind us, was giving us the once over while we stood at attention. Then he came around to the front of us and began his uh, official address. And basically he was telling us, I know that you all think you're pretty special. Actually, I want you to know that you are really only maybe about two or three inches above whale dung at the bottom of the ocean. And he said, you think you're a Green Beret. He said, what you are going to experience now and you're going to realize is that you've just learned and earned the right to begin to train to know what it is to be a Green Beret. One of the things that Special Forces looks for is an independent attitude of a person who thinks out of the box, almost like a rebellious kind of person who doesn't like to conform to the norms. And boy, I fit that to the T. During basic training, every trainee usually got KP once just so they'd have the experience. I had it nine times in basic training because of uh, my attitude. And so I, I met these challenges, but along the way, my attitude got in the way many times. And so I was always getting extra duty or things like that. And one of these times I had guard duty. The day that I had off, I went down to uh, Fayetteville. I hit a bar early in the morning, started drinking. And the only thing I remember about that time was going out to the parking meter about every 25 minutes to putting another coin in so I wouldn't get a ticket for parking. Uh, The next thing I remember is I woke up and I was, tried to move and I just ached. I was I was really, really sore, could hardly breathe. And I looked up and I saw my, my team sergeant behind bars. And I said, Sarge, what are you doing behind bars? And he said, I'm not behind bars, Bikerk, you are. And I said, what did I do? And he said, well, you really did it this time. And I said, from what I got from the police report, you uh, spent most of the day in this bar, got in your car, tried to drive back to base, Fort Bragg, You bounced off a couple of parked cars in Fayetteville. The Fayetteville police uh, tried to pull you over. You wouldn't pull over. You took off to the Interstate 95. Then the North Carolina State Police got involved with this chase. They ran you over. You came out of the car with with a billy club. I usually carried a billy club under my seat. I came out with a billy club and and assaulted the North Carolina State Police, and they beat me up really bad. And uh, they said, and now you're in jail. And he said... Right now you're facing charges of driving while intoxicated, hit and run, assault with a deadly weapon. And those are the only charges that I can remember. And I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, you better get yourself a lawyer. So I took his advice. I went down to Fayetteville. I got a lawyer, started telling him my story. About 30 seconds into the story, he pushed himself away from the desk and he said, you can stop right there. I've heard this a hundred times. He said, here's what you got to do. How quick can you get yourself out of the country? And I said, well, I think we're on alert to go to Mali, Africa. And he said, when? And I said, maybe six months. And he said, not good enough. He said, you got to get yourself out of the country in 30 days. Can you do it? And I said, "Uh, I don't don't know. I can try. So he said, you better. So I went back uh, back to base, and I thought, and I said, well, the only way that I know of is I'll go re-enlist for Vietnam. Re-enlisting, I could go to Vietnam within 30 days. So I re-enlisted for Vietnam was promoted to E4, uh, received a re-enlistment bonus at the time, which was $600 for re-enlisting. Went back to the lawyer and I said, look, I'm I'm going to Vietnam within 30 days. And he said, good. Now, when we get to court, 
when I tell you, just say guilty, Your Honor. I said, okay. So we went to court. There were a lot of, a lot of military guys facing this civilian court, and they were getting handed tremendous sentences, jail time and everything. And then they were going to receive military discipline as well. My case came up. They called my name. I stood up before the judge. He read off a bunch of things, asked me, how do I plead? My lawyer looked at me. I looked at him and he shook, he nodded his head. And so I said, guilty, your honor. And he said, okay, I find you guilty of reckless driving and I find you $100. So apparently what my lawyer had done was he had talked with the DA and they got, uh, he said, look at this guy's on his way to Vietnam. Show him a little brick, show him a little grace. As I was leaving the court, my lawyer said, oh yeah, by the way, my, my fee is $500. So I, I gave him the rest of my reenlistment bonus and there was my, my reenlistment bonus of $600 was gone, but I was on my way to Vietnam. I got into Vietnam in July of 69 and I remember one, one of the experiences um, that uh, was really poignant to me at the time was it was the, when the uh, man, first man landed on the moon. And I remember thinking, man, here we, we put a man on the moon, but yet we're still crawling around in the mud over here in the jungles, fighting a war, killing each other. I said, you know, what a contradiction. You know, what an irony that we have the ability to put a man on the moon, but we still can't even get along with each other down here. So I got into Cameron Bay and my, uh, I was sent to a, uh, a replacement company. And one of my first duties, because I was an E4, was uh, I was on burnout latrine duty, which meant that I had to take those 55-gallon drums that they used for burnout latrines, and I had to pull them out of the latrine and pour diesel on them and, and stir them up with a, and light them on fire and just stir, and stir them up. So there I was in Cameron Bay doing this one day with my, with my beret on, and I saw a, a sergeant major walking over in the distance, and he had a beret on, and he happened to see me, and he said, Hey, beret, what are you doing there? And I said, What's it look like I'm doing and he said, what's your MOS? What's your military specialty? And I said, a medic. And he said, come on with me. And I said, but, but I don't have any orders. I don't have anything. And he goes, that's okay. Don't worry about it. And he said, look, I work up in two corps. We need medics with our special operations groups up there. I'm going to put you on a plane and we'll get you, we'll get you up there. So while I was there, I met, I met this uh, crusty old E-8. Turned out he was a, a veteran from World War II, Korea, and he had spent like five years already in Vietnam. And he was just a tremendous, tremendous medic. He was my, became my mentor. And while I was there, he said, look, you don't want to go to special operations. He said, you were trained as a medic. Do what Green Beret medics were trained to do. Go out in an A camp. And he said, I've got the perfect A camp for you. He said, it's the camp that I, I helped establish back in the early 60s. Throughout the highlands of Vietnam, there were probably close to 30 mountain yard tribes. Now, the mountain yards were not Vietnamese. They were an ethnic minority about 30 different tribes. Each tribe had its own area, had its own territory, had its own language, had its own village, culture, and community. And so I was assigned to Doxiang. And the mountain yards in that area were called Sedang. I remember flying out there the first day and just seeing the, the beautiful lush jungles that, were, that, were, that made up the central highlands and the mountains. It was just a beautiful, beautiful country. And so I, I reported into Doxiang. There were 11 other Americans there. Uh, and we lived in the middle of this uh, mountain yard village. There were 2,300 mountain yards. Uh, and in the mountain yard culture, because of their need to exist in that kind of a uh, environment, when an individual reached 12 years old, they were considered an adult, which meant they had responsibilities to fulfill. And they depended on each individual to fulfill those responsibilities. We had a 12-year-old that was an M60 machine gunner in our company. 
we were instructed to pick out a bodyguard, someone that we could befriend and develop a special friendship with. Uh, I picked a young mountain yard boy named Deo. He was 15 years old, which meant that he had already had three years of combat. And I remember saying to him, Deo, you got to help me. The word for doctor in Vietnamese is boxi. So they all called me boxi. Uh, and he said, how can I help you boxi? And I said, look it. I hate snakes. I'm afraid of tigers. You got to help me learn how to survive out in this jungle. And he laughed and he said, Boxy, he said, we don't survive in the jungle. He said, we live. The jungle gives us our way of life. We need the jungle to survive, to, to live and exist. I'm going to teach you how to live, not just survive in the jungle. That was an important lesson that he taught me about the difference between surviving and living. Because these people had found a way to, in the midst of this beautiful, but hostile environment, a jungle that was just filled with snakes and tigers and things that could kill you in a minute. They weren't afraid of it. They found a way to, to live, to thrive, to develop a, a, a village and a way of life, a culture. It helped them become the people that they were. Under Dale's tutelage, he helped me assimilate into the mountain yard culture. I became one of them. On April 1st, early in the morning, uh, we started receiving incoming and we had had a lot of incoming in the past many times, but many times, but uh, this was different. I mean, it was just intense. We had a barrage. It's just, it never stopped for hours. It was just continuous artillery and rocket attacks. I was up because I was uh, attending an all-night funeral for uh, one of our security mountain yards who had recently died. So when the barrage started, I started to run towards the my alert position on my way to go there to meet some of the other yard medics because I was going to distribute medical kits and things to them so that they could go to their respective companies and, and start treating the wounded. I didn't make it to the bunker because halfway there I, I saw a yard that had been wounded so I stopped and t started to treat him. I heard a rocket coming in. I threw myself on top of him and the, and the rocket landed about 25 feet away from us. As the rocket exploded, much of the shrapnel slammed into my back and I remember thinking that that must be what it feels like to get kicked by a horse. As I was impacted by the uh, the shrapnel, uh, I, I did have a, like an out-of-body experience because I saw myself going head over heels. And as I was going head over heels, I looked back and the mountain yard that I was laying on top of was just blown apart. And so I, I landed in the four-deuce pit surrounded by sandbags. I realized what I needed to be doing, so I tried to get up, but I couldn't move because some of the shrapnel had been lodged in my spinal column and knocked my spinal column unconscious. I couldn't move, couldn't, couldn't get up. The next thing I remember is I felt somebody picking me up. I looked and it was Dale, my bodyguard. And I, I said to Dale, how did you find me? And he said, this is where I belong. He said, I belong by you, by your side. So he picked me up and he wanted to take me down to the medical bunker. And I said, no, we need to stay up here. During this time, Dale carried me and we had been notified that an American officer, our XO, had been shot out of the, uh, out of, we had a John Wayne Tower in the middle of the camp. And we heard that he was in a, uh, a real dangerous spot. We went out, we got him, brought him back down to the medical bunker. Dale wanted me to stay down there. I said, no, we need to get back to the battle. So we, Dale carried me back out into the battle. During that time, I was shot another time in the side, in the back. Dale again took me down to the bunker the other medic on the team, Dan, said, you got to stay down here. I got to take care of you. And I said, no, we need to get back. And so Dale 
carried me back out into the battle again, and we continued to fight, continued to provide aid to the uh, to the women and the children and the men that were being wounded at the time. We were in the, in the, our bunkers in the trenches area, and we ran into a. I remember running into some uh, the NVA that had had encircled the wire, and I remember him seeing him. He shot me, and the wound hit me in the wound me in the stomach. Dale took me back after that wound, and by that time they were looking at me and saying, it's going to be pretty bad. And I said, look at Dale, if I'm going to die, I'm not dying down here. I'm going to, I choose to die in the battle. I guess that's a warrior creed. If you're going to die, you die in the battle. So Dale took me back out into the battle. Once we got back out there, Dale, now keep in mind, this is a 15-year-old kid that's doing this. He got shot in the leg and he couldn't carry me anymore. But he didn't want to leave me. He didn't want to go down and take care of himself. He began to drag me as we continued to fight and continued to provide aid to, to those who were being wounded. I can remember that there were times we both, you know, both feeling like we couldn't do anymore and we would look at each other and we would just smile and say, we can do this, we can do this. And uh, Deo's strength became part of my strength. My strength became part of his strength as we continued to do what we were trained to do, which was minister first aid to those that were being wounded. We heard a rocket coming in. Dale rolled me over and laid on top of me to protect me from the blast because we knew this one was coming close. And the rocket exploded. Uh, we both went up in the air, came back down, and I said, okay, Dale, come on, let's go. I found out Dale was killed by the rocket blast because I, you know, at the time there wasn't really, people say, how did you feel at that time? And I honestly say that I, there was really no time for any kind of guilt or anything. There was just, I knew what we had to be doing. I don't remember feeling anything except looking back now. There was just a tremendous sense of love. Love that Dale had for me, the love that I had for Dale, the love that I had for those people. I wasn't afraid that I might die because I think love was a much more powerful emotion that was motivating me at the time. And we continued on doing what we were doing uh, until I finally collapsed and um, then I was medevaced. I actually don't. Re I only remember being thrown in the chopper. Uh, that was my last conscious moment, and the next conscious moment that I have is uh, waking up in the ICU ward in the 71st evac at Pleiku. I remember doing a uh, doing like an exam of myself, my surroundings, where am I, what's going on. My abdomen had been ripped open from the uh, uh, from the shrapnel and from the gunshot wounds, and my large intestine was just lying in a bag on my on my stomach. Um, I looked up and I saw all kinds of tubes running into my neck, into my arms. Uh, I was catheterized. I couldn't feel my legs, but I reached down to make sure that they were there. They were there. And then I felt this darkness overcoming me, unconsciousness. And I had been unconscious plenty of times before in college, but this was different. There was a darkness and a finality to this. And so I, it's what I call my hand-to-hand -hand combat with death because I knew that death was overtaking me. And so I brought every weapon that I could, every skill that I had been taught, all of the things that had brought me success in the past, I took those weapons and those skills and those strengths and I fought death. I said, I'm not gonna go unconscious, I can't because I don't wanna die, I don't wanna die. But it was like death was saying, is this the best you got, Gary? You're not going to, you're not gonna live. And I'd go unconscious. Well, that experience of waking up and fighting death hand-to-hand -hand and then losing, that happened a couple times. And each time it became more and more certain in my mind that I was dying. 
one of the times I came to, and there was a chaplain standing there, he said to me, he was a young guy, maybe about my age, and he said, I'm glad to see you're awake. And I said, I'm glad to be awake, sir. And he said, do you want to pray? I've been praying for you. Would you like to pray? And I, I said, I don't know how to pray. I don't even know who to pray to. And he handed me a cross and he said, that's okay, son. God knows how to listen. And so at 23, 24 years old, I made my first prayer. I said, God, if you're real, I sure need you. And something happened at that moment. Um, you know, I wasn't miraculously healed. There were no bolts of lightning or things like that. But all of a sudden, I had this peace that came over me in a sense of something bigger than me, more powerful than me, that was real. All of a sudden, I wasn't aware, afraid of, of dying anymore. I wasn't even afraid if I could never walk again because at that time, it wasn't clear whether I would walk again or not. But I just knew that there was something greater than myself. And I say that when my courage failed in that hospital bed, my faith was born. I said, I need to find out who this God is. I mean, think about it. If, if you believe that there is a God, the greatest thing you can do in your life is to find him. So I started this journey of trying to find God. I, uh, I eventually healed. I went to Japan. I then came back to the States. I went to Valley Forge in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Well, I eventually was fully recuperated, and I was assigned to the 10th Special Forces Group, which I didn't want to go to. Uh, when I was discharged, they said, where do you want to go? And I said, oh, you mean I get a choice? And they said, sure, you get a choice. And I said, okay, well, send me back to the 5th in Vietnam. If I can't do the 5th, send me to the 8th group in Panama or in Okinawa. Or that was the first group in Okinawa. If I can't do that, I want to go to the 8th group in Panama. So I got my orders, and I didn't get Vietnam, Okinawa, or Panama. They sent me to the 10th Special Forces Group at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. Nobody coming back from Vietnam wanted to be stateside. It was like playing army, you know, and it was just a, being stateside in the 70s was a, a, a difficult place to be for military. At the time, they were offering a, uh, opportunities for early outs. So I got an early out to go back to college, and now I wanted to go on with my medical uh, goals. I wanted to become a doctor and go back to Vietnam. So I remember going back to SUNY Brockport where I had attended before, changed my major to pre-med, I got out of the military on August 31st. September 3rd, I was in classes at Brockport. I didn't have many clothes, so I had to wear my army fatigues and stuff, fatigue jackets, field jackets. Didn't have a place to stay, so I was sleeping in my van. And it wasn't too long before I started uh, experiencing some of the things that many of us back in the 70s who returned from Vietnam experienced. And it was a lot of the anti-war stuff. I, mean, I would be studying in the library, People would see that I was a vet. They'd walk by and push my books off the desk. Um, one morning I woke up in, my, in the van and the van was being shaken. I looked out and I saw probably about 10 or 15 students out there shaking my van and yelling at me saying, hey, come on outside, baby killer. We want to know what it's like to burn villages and kill babies. It was just another hurtful experience. Finally, one day a group of them surrounded me and um, spit on me. And I said... Uh, I got to get out of here because if I don't, I'll end up in jail. So I took off, got my van, and I drove down to Massachusetts because I remembered that my cousin, that she and her husband lived in Massachusetts. And because I knew that there was a God, I said, maybe she can help me. So I went to Massachusetts. I ended up staying with her and her husband. Her husband's name was Buck. One day he uh, said, Gary, do you value our friendship? And I said, I sure do. I mean, you're the closest thing I've got to a friend. And he said, 
do me a favor then. Read this book. So he gave me a book, and I started to read it. And I went back to him, and I said, what kind of book is this? It's, it's about the same guy. And he said, just keep reading. And he had given me a New Testament. So I had read through Matthew and Mark, Luke, and I got to John. And when I got to the 14th chapter of John, it, it starts out by saying, let not your heart be troubled. And my heart had already been troubled. I was afraid of the anger that was inside of me, the guilt that I had, uh, the anger, the, the pain. It was just eating away at me. The experiences that the home, my homecoming had provided for me were much worse than what Vietnam had done to me. And so I was just a troubled, troubled guy that was ready to explode. I said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? And I said, yes, I do. He said, believe also in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it was Jesus speaking. And, and, and when I read that, I realized, I said, wow, I, I, Jesus is the God that I met in that hospital bed. And then in uh, the 15th chapter, he said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And, and that stuck with me too. You, you've chosen me for a purpose? I just felt God saying, yes, Gary, I've got you chosen for a special purpose. So uh, that was July 2nd, 1972. I, uh, I prayed and became a Christian that night, three o'clock in the morning. I knew that God had forgiven me, and, but I just couldn't forgive myself. And I still, didn't, I still didn't have the ability to have a relationship with other people because I was afraid to let them in because I was afraid of my anger. I was afraid of the things that I had done. Um, I was afraid that if they saw me, they would reject me much like what the people at, at uh, SUNY Brockport had done. And my thought was, you guys are calling me names, but I could call myself worse names because of how I feel about myself. So I, I decided that what I needed to do was to continue this journey and find out more about this God that I now knew was real. And so there was this little seminary up in uh, Lancaster, New Hampshire, up in the White Mountains. I decided I wanted to go up there and just learn about this God that I now knew personally. So I went there. One of the days that I could, I went out to the, just took a ride because that's what I did many times when I just felt overwhelmed by uh, the, the way that I was feeling still. And I, I took a ride on Route 2 out of Lancaster, New Hampshire, and I found this little parking spot that said Appalachian Mountain Trail. I started to hike the trail. Uh, all of a sudden, getting back into those mountains, into that nature, reminded me of being in Vietnam, and all of a sudden there was this peace that came over me. And I said, this is beautiful. This is where I want to stay. And so I ended up this, making that my home. And what I would do is I would go into Lancaster, attend classes. After the classes, I would go back out into the mountains. And I remember when I, 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 remember when I found that, that sanctuary of being in the mountains, I made another prayer in September of 73. I said, God, you gave me my life back in Vietnam. I'm giving you my life back now. Whatever you want for my life, that's all I want, God. I made that prayer in September of 73. Two weeks later, I was notified that I was being awarded the Medal of Honor after I made that prayer. So here I am hiding in this cave because I was trying to forget about Vietnam. I wanted to just know about God, and I felt that the best way I could heal was just to forget about Vietnam, thinking that if I could forget it, I would get better. And now I'm praying to God, and God says, Here, Gary, I want to help you heal, I'm going to give you a Medal of Honor. So I started thinking about the Medal of Honor, what it meant. I also started thinking about a saying that we had in Vietnam, that to really live, you must almost die. To those that fight for it, life has a meaning the protected will never know. I fought for my life in Vietnam. I almost died. 
I fought for my life in that cave as I was trying to reflect and to refocus and find a way of making Vietnam a part of my life, finding a way of making this Medal of Honor part of my life now. So I spent that year and a half in the cave trying to come to grips with those, those two things that were now a part of my life. And people say, well, what brought you out of the cave? And actually what brought me out of the cave was is that there was a girl that I met in that, well, actually I didn't meet her. I went down to my post office box and there was this note in my box that said, hi, my name's Lolly. I've seen you around town. And I would get these notes in my post office box about two times a week or so. And then one day she put her picture in there and I said, wow, you're pretty, that's pretty cute. So I said, I'm going to find this girl. There was only 2,000 people in the town of Lancaster and I was going to go in every door until I could find this girl. And one day I met her in a laundromat. We had one date and I asked her to marry me. And she said, okay, I'll marry you, but you got to come out of the cave. And we've been married for 45 years. And I found out that forgetting isn't getting better. Getting better is finding someone who will come into your hurt, come into your caves, listen to you, support you, maybe not understand everything that you went through, but that's okay because they accept you and support you without judgment. And in doing so, they give you a hope for tomorrow. They give you a reason to live. One of the things that's common among us that that wear the medal is that um, we receive a medal for a battle, but a tougher battle begins when when you wear it. Because now all of a sudden you're having to deal with, why me? I don't deserve this. I only did what I was trained to do. There are so many others who did greater things that should be here, that should receive this. Why me? What God helped me to understand is, is that, Gary, this medal is not about you. I've come to understand that the medal is not about me. It's not about any one person who did any one thing on any one day. But there is an honor. And the honor that comes with it is that The medal represents something that's greater than one person. It represents millions of men and women who love this country and who love others more than themselves. It represents the millions of acts, selfless acts, done by every man and woman who served this country. And the other honor that comes with it is that this medal, when people see it, there's a message that goes with it. The message of there's a, a different way to live your life. To really live, you must almost die. Maybe not die physically, but learn how to deny yourself, die to yourself, experience what it means to really live by caring for others more than yourself. That's the message of the Medal of Honor. And that's the message that has allowed me to be able to wear it. Uh, When I put that medal around my neck, there's no room for self anymore. Well, after I had received the Medal of Honor with President Nixon, I came back to my cave and I put the medal in my duffel bag and I never took the medal out again for seven years. I'd come back to Rochester married with my family because I was attending grad school. Some of the veterans in the area had, had heard that I had the Medal of Honor. And they asked me if I wanted would participate in this demonstration at, at the Liberty Pole, which was downtown Rochester, because the Iranian hostages had just been released. And many of us were, you know, we were glad and ecstatic that they were released and we loved the reception and the welcome home that they received. But there was a part of us that said, wow, I've been held hostage ever since I returned from Vietnam and nobody has ever welcomed me home. So we had this rally down there and they asked me to speak. And I had this friend that, um, was Tom Cray, who was the director of a local veterans outreach center here in Rochester. And Tom had the unique ability of, of being able to look through the walls that all of us as veterans tried to put up to protect ourselves. 
and he could look through those walls and see something great. And he, he had the ability to, to help us pull that out, to work through all that guilt and that anger, and to be able to get in touch with some of the good things that we needed to build our life on. We couldn't build our life on anger and hate and guilt. And so Tom, on this day before we spoke, we were standing on the dais. He said, you know, Gary, you've got a special mission here. And I thought about that verse that said, you have not chosen me, Gary, I have chosen you. And he said, wear the Medal of Honor. And I said, I can't, Tom. And he said, quit being so selfish, Gary. It's not about you anyhow. He said, you're not wearing it for yourself, wear it for us. And he reached in and he took the medal out of my pocket and gave it to me and I, I put it on. And that was the first time that I'd worn the Medal of Honor since President Nixon hung around my neck in October of 73. And you've been listening to Medal of Honor recipient Gary Bykirk. And my goodness, what eloquence. His spiritual renewal, his rebirth, his bout with selfishness, self-doubt and anger, and his walk in love with a partner for 45 years and going. A beautiful story, a story of pain and suffering and redemption. Gary Bykirk's story here on Our American Stories.